I'd like to introduce you to tonight's moderator, Mr. Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus Russell is a professor of history and American studies at Occidental College and the author of A Renegade History of the United States. Please give a warm welcome to Thaddeus Russell. Tonight's topic is on the future of Los Angeles. Uh, and I, when I was thinking about this topic, um, I... I was thinking about driving in Los Angeles and, and what, I, what, what goes through my mind as I think about what's outside my, outside my car. And I guess I would ask that you all think for a minute about what does the city smell like, taste like, look like, feel like? On that level, what does it, what does it feel like? How does it come into your senses? Think about that just for a second. Hold on to that set of feelings and then take all the immigrants out of it. Then what does it smell like and taste like and look like and feel like? We don't know is the answer, first of all. Uh, but we do generally agree, panelists up here and many others, at least two guys up here, generally agree that we might be headed toward a Los Angeles in which there maybe not no immigrants, but certainly fewer. There's general agreement, and these two experts can talk about this, there's general agreement that Los Angeles and California is becoming more and more homegrown, so that by the end of my lifetime, the majority of Angelinos, I believe, will be homegrown, right? So what does that mean? What will, it, what will Los Angeles look like because of that? So joining me to discuss this um, topic, which of course is very important for anyone who lives here and plans on living here in the future, and I think it's important for the United States and even the globe, are um, Dowell Myers, who is a professor of policy, planning, and demography at the Saul Price School of Public Policy at USC. He also directs the USC Population Dynamics Research Group, and he's the author of Immigrants and Boomers, and he's co-author of a just-released, actually it was released today, I believe, right, Dowell? Um, report, major report on the new generational future of Los Angeles. In fact, the LA Times covered it today. Um, here in the middle is Richard Mora, my colleague at Occidental. He's assistant professor of sociology at Occidental. He's also affiliated with, with the Latino and Latin American studies program there. And at Oxy, he created and teaches the California Immigration Semester, which is a wonderful, new, innovative course there. It's a set of four courses, really. It's not just one. Designed to teach first-year students about immigration and immigrant communities in Los Angeles and in California. With two colleagues. With two other colleagues. Um, right. Um, just in case they hear it. Just in case they're watching, which we hope they will be. <laughs> um, or are here, I don't think. Uh, and to my right is Joel Kotkin. He's the author of The Next 100 Million, America in 2050 which explores how the nation will evolve in the next four decades, and he's the author of City, A Global History. He is the Distinguished Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University. He's executive editor of the website newgeography.com, and he writes the weekly New Geographer column for Forbes.com, as well as a weekly column for the Orange County Register. So, um, I generally can't stand panels uh, in which people stand up on stage and agree with each other. So we actually went out of our way a little bit to find panelists who disagree with each other. And I wanted to start with a pretty serious disagreement between two of our panelists here, 
Richard and Dowell, it's actually gotten fairly heated. Joel. Sorry, Joel and Dowell. It's Whoever. actually Richard doesn't fight. Richard doesn't fight with anybody. He's a nice guy. Uh, Dowell and Joel um, have been sparring, uh, sort of in public forums for more than a year now, about the future of Los Angeles. And uh, I have to say, um, I saw that Dowell actually referred to Joel's ideas as, at one point, misleading and dangerous. So I'd like to start there, um, because I like to be non-controversial. Um, and um, I want to ask Dowell and, Rich, and, and, sorry, and Joel, first of all, you disagree about a lot of things about the future of LA, what it will look like. But there is, I think, one point of agreement, which is that Los Angeles and California generally will be less and less of an immigrant place. Is that right? You do agree there? I, I believe that. OK. So then what's your problem with Joel? Please lay out. Well, you see, Joel's an immigrant. He comes from New York. And my definition of not an immigrant is someone who's born in California. If you're born in some other state, you're an immigrant too. That's a Texan way of thinking. Uh, and always in California, everybody came from somewhere else. We all, since the gold rush, came from um, Iowa, Oklahoma, or came around the Horn by clipper ship, or came by jet airplane always from somewhere else, and we were all immigrants, really. Some of us were foreign-born, some were U.S.-born, but we brought different cultures to, to L.A. But over time, we've developed a California culture, and kids are born here, and now fewer people are coming, and lo and behold, this year already, that already this year, the majority of, of uh, people in Los Angeles will be native Californians for the first time. And then projections for the future are even more significant, right? Well, going forward in time, what happens, you have all these kids who are uh, native Californians today, and lo and behold, you say, I'm a demographer, we do this fancy arithmetic, we can predict the future. In 20 years' time, those kids will be 27 years old. They'll be the new workers, the new taxpayers, the new home buyers. At that time, uh, almost two-thirds of them will be native Californians. And the scary thought, which I'll leave you with at the very end tonight, but I'll give it to you right now. The scary thought is we depend on these kids who are native Californians and they're going to our schools right now. <laughs> my, my son is one of them, so be careful. But, um, so, uh, so then what's the problem, Joel, with him? No, I, you know, I, I think we, we probably don't disagree on the facts. The facts are what they are. Um, we just interpret them differently. I think that's... Um, first of all, I think that... Uh, I agree with Dow on the idea that we're not going to have a huge rush of people in. L.A. in the 50s and 60s was the fastest growing city uh, in the high income world. I mean, it was just remarkable. I came to L.A. in 75 um, and, you know, I knew some natives, but most of the people had come from someplace else. What's really interesting to me is not only the out-migration story, which is people have been leaving. You know, California has lost about 3.4 million people over 20 years net. Um, in domestic migration has been the change in foreign migration. We just did uh, a little bit of work on this recently where um, we, I was absolutely, I kept looking at the numbers because I, I couldn't quite comprehend that they would be this far. It's not that we have less immigrants, which we will have, and the city will become more native, which I, have, I would say is a, a mixed blessing at best. Um, but the fact that um, LA had the smallest growth of foreign born in the last 11 years of any major American city out of 51, it was 51st. Hmm. And that the, the gross number in the increase of foreign born 
was about one quarter of what it is in Houston, about one third what it is in Dallas, one sixth of what it is in New York. So if immigration's going down, it's going down precipitously here, and we ought to think about why that's happening as, long, as well as in the out-migration. And my interpretation is that uh, a lot of it has to do with the, eco the economy of LA, which is really quite, has been very stagnant really for at least the last 10 years. Um, that's a big part of it. And I, and I will also would just argue as an urban historian who you know, wrote the city and um, that I think that part of the problem is great cities are energized, not by so much no one leaving. I think people leave and the, it's a, who's not coming? It's other words, the young, ambitious people, the immigrant who's struggling but wants to start something. I think that's the essence of what makes a great city. You, and you go back to Athens, you can go back to Baghdad, you can go back to uh, uh, London, uh, you can go back to Berlin in 1900, you can go to New York in the early part of the century, and LA more recently. They were made and recreated by people who came from someplace else. When you lose that, and you lose it in such a dramatic way, I think it's going to have some effect on the dynamism. But I think it's also a product of a very poor economy. Unfortunately, I do rankings on jobs, on, on high-tech jobs, on business professional service jobs, part of what I do. And I am so depressed every time because LA always is at, at or near the bottom of almost every growth indice. And not only do we fall behind the Houston's and the Dallas's, you can say, well, those are younger cities and they're cheaper and they're crappier places to live, you could argue. Um, but we also fall, fall behind the New York's and in some cases the Philadelphia's um, and the Boston's and even most disgustingly of all, the San Francisco's. Hey. Um, so so I, I, you know, I think there is a problem here that we have to deal with. Um, and how we deal with it, I think, is, is going to really determine how Los Angeles evolves. I, you know, when I, I work in Singapore quite often, and as one uh, young woman said to me, well, she was not so young, just young by my standards. Uh, she was uh, uh, in her late 30s, she said, when she was young, everyone talked about moving to LA, and now they talk about moving someplace else. Okay, so you agree yes, I that Los Angeles will become a post-immigrant city? Will become increasingly post-immigrant, I would You agree imagine. on that? Immigrants aren't going away. They're still here. They're just getting older. Yeah. And what, what you're complaining about, Joel, is that there's not more, enough of them more coming. Um, we're, we're holding steady about 36% foreign-born. That's a pretty high ratio. Only Miami's higher, about 51%. So you, you don't want an increase? You don't, you don't think that Los Angeles needs an increase in immigration? Um, I, I, think it, I think he's right that, uh, Joel's right that it's good to have more people coming in and have more dynamism of people coming in. But it's also bad if they come into a place where they can't afford the housing. What happened in the 1980s was really bad in Los Angeles. We had a huge growth in, in foreign-born that came in here, and they had to double up in housing and live in very bad situations because our housing was the most expensive in the country. Now the reason they don't come here is not because there's not jobs. Even in, uh, in before the recession, we had very low unemployment. We had, lot, we had plenty of jobs. On, um, nobody was unemployed. But they couldn't afford the housing here. They're going to Houston where they can get a, a job for three quarters of the pay and at you know, one quarter of the housing costs. Well, I, I, just to give you an illustration of, of that point, um, we did a survey where we compared cost of living to the average paycheck, yeah. and of like, 51, LA was 51st. In other yeah. words, what the average salary here buys, and by the way, that didn't include taxes. 
um, which I think would make it worse. New York and, and also Los Angeles, uh, also um, New York was also down there also near the bottom and even San Francisco was down the bottom. San Jose was quite close to the top because of the much higher salaries. Mm. Um, but, uh, but I think it, it's what you get for the money that you earn. So in the past, what we would call the median multiple, which is how many years of, of uh, median salary for a median price house, used to be about three or four almost everywhere. So if you lived in a place where wages were higher, the housing was slightly higher. We're now completely out of whack. We're, we're at six or seven here in LA. Those are old data. I mean, that's what it was before the crash. No, this is what it is right now. Right now, I think uh, Wendell Cox just did those numbers. And, and of course, as you know, the numbers in housing prices are now going up quite a, quite a bit. I'm well. feeling richer. Okay, let me, let, me try to sh let me try to sharpen this debate a little bit here. Um, so Joel, you have attributed various ills of California to what you call the progressive war on the middle class. Right. So I'd like for you, without getting too far into the weeds, I'd like for you to lay out sort of what that is, what the progressive war on the middle class is, and how that might have affected immigration. Well, I think there, there, it would affect in migration, because I also think that those of us who come from New York right. also deserve some respect. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, Over, overseas, people from overseas. Right, yeah, right. But, but, yeah people from, from different cultures. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, but, but I think, you know, what, what, what I think has happened is we've taken an economic policy which has been very much kind of post-industrial. In other words, we really don't want industry. Um, we've driven up our, our energy costs to ridiculous levels. So many of the opportunities that would have existed for immigrants in the past and for people coming from out other places don't exist. So, for instance, if you have electricity costs that are 30, 40, 50, in some cases 60 percent higher than competitive regions, somebody wants to build a semiconductor plant. I was just in Utah, and they have a uh, uh, Intel builds the flash memory um, in a place called Lehigh. 3,000 jobs, high-paying jobs, uh, high-skilled jobs, and I asked him, the, the uh, guy who was like my colleague Ali Medeiros from Iran, um, you know, Iranian guy now living among Mormons. Um, and, uh, and I said, well, why are you guys here? And he said, the cost of electricity, the regulatory cost, meant that Intel can't build a plant in California. So that's what we're doing is we're eroding our industrial base. We're eroding much of the middle levels of our economy um, while other places are, are growing theirs. And I think we... we uh, um, we pay a price for that. So regulation of businesses, taxes on the middle class in California. Well, that's it. That, yeah, that, and that's gotten much worse with this mo much, so most these, recent tax. So these increase. have created disincentives, according to you, for immigrants and migrants. Right. right. I, again, From people are reluctant, I think, I think Dal and I would agree, are reluctant to leave. Once you're in your 30s and 40s, very hard to leave. You know, the, the, you know as we would say in Yiddish, the altacacas, you know, don't go. I mean, they just, they, you know, you're just, you're stuck there. You know, it's like, why, you know, I would stay here. I have my kids in school, my aging, aging uh, grandmother, you know, whatever you have, you, you stay. It's that younger person who's on their way up who says, you know, I don't know if I want to pay 13 or 12 percent or 11 percent of income tax when I can go someplace and, you know, maybe pay two or three. Okay. So progressive policies have been at the root of the problem no, here. Not, they're, I, they're part of it. It's a whole series of things, okay. not just one thing. Okay. What I was going to say, though, that Dowell has actually, he's prescribed sort of an increase in public funding for universities 
et cetera, for, for the children of immigrants. And then, and then we're going to get in Richard, who's extremely noisy, and he's been talking too much, but I'm going to try to shut him up. Anyway, uh, we'll try to get Richard in after you respond to Joel. So I didn't know we were going to talk about tax policy. That's, that's always a touchy subject. Um, but you get what you pay for. And the studies all show that if you put more money into public higher ed, what for every dollar you put in, you get four and a half dollars back because lo and behold, you create graduates who have a better education, better occupation, higher earnings, and they pay more taxes. So you invest taxes to make taxes. The problem is you have to invest it up front and you get the money back later. And, and in California and America, we don't want to wait. We make decisions within this term of office, whatever it is, and we don't get it back within a year or two years, that's not a good deal, we think. But you can count on the fact that the kids will grow up, they will graduate, and the payback comes by the time they're age 32, according to this Berkeley study uh, that was funded by the, the Campaign for College Opportunity. So you have to wait, how long is that? Maybe 10 years to get your money back. Can we wait that long? I don't think we can. Okay. Uh, but we, we have to. We have to invest in that next generation because meanwhile, everybody else who's older is getting older too. And my favorite thing I like to remind people is to ask the question, so really, who is it, given this scenario that, that Joel paints where, where we have all these people sitting pretty and don't want to leave and we don't have enough young people coming, so who is it, really, who's going to buy your house? It's going to be that college kid you invested in or maybe it's the high school kid you didn't invest in. And that's the, th that's the threat. We really, it's our own self-interest to invest in those kids because 10 years from now, people will start to sell houses and they're going to have to have buyers. Okay. So I, I, I teach cultural studies and I'm very interested in culture and how this might or might not change the culture of Los Angeles and California. So I'm imagining uh, a world in which everyone was born in the same place um, and shared sort of common space and perhaps a common culture. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe languages will diminish. The number of languages spoken in public, in public schools here is, Richard, you told me the other day, 90-something. Yeah, we have, currently in LAUSD, we have about 93 languages. 93 languages spoken wow. in, our, in our schools So that would here. mean that there's at least one speaker of a language. So. Right. Uh, how many kinds of food can we sample in Los Angeles, right? It's nearly infinite. Um, <clears throat> we also have... I think even more significantly in things that aren't talked about a lot, we have different ideas about social norms. Here's one, the family. Joel has written about this quite a bit. The idea, the Ameri classic American idea that the only proper and normal way in which to live and raise children is in the nuclear family, mom, dad, two kids, or whatever, right? That, of course, has been challenged by wave after wave of immigrants from the beginning of immigration in the United States, people who brought different ideas about that, people who brought their grand, the grand parents and the uncles and the aunts and had their neighbors take care of their children, the communities take care of their children. We still have that as an issue, right? That is often a charge leveled at, in particular, Latino immigrants, right? They have the whole neighborhood taking care of their kids when it should be a nuclear family, often a suburban I, I don't house. know where you construct these things, but, uh, oh. <laughs> uh, I, 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 you know, for instance, the I, immigrants, I, immigrants, hold on, wait a minute. No, I'm not talking about truth. <laughs> I'm talking about what is leveled as a charge against immigrants. Well, it has been. Yeah, I, but I would argue that in most cases, immigrants are more family-oriented. And by the way, the idea of an extended family is, is, um, has been existent in almost all cultures. And, you know, there's a, there's a small group of maybe, you know, people locked in the 1950s, which was an exceptional decade um, compared to what was before and after. Um, and fundamentally, I would think to say that immigrants are, 
not family-oriented is just absurd, and that the family doesn't have um, that, that, you know, that there's a, the idea that, well, the, the immigrants came here and they brought, you know, uh, different ideas. I think in many ways the immigrants sometimes have more of the old ideas than the native-born. And I would argue in some cases, David Hayes Batista has written about this, actually the longer people stay, sometimes the more dysfunctional they become. Okay. Uh, well, I, we can argue about that. I, I do think it's fairly well agreed upon that the nuclear family in world history has been the outlier as a norm. But anyway, we can, I want to actually turn to, to Richard. I'm not sure of that. But okay, but I'm going to turn to Richard um, and sort of ask you what you think. First of all, do you believe either one of these guys? I mean, do you believe sort of the demographic claims being made? And do you think there will be assimilation a, 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 accompanying that or not? Well, first of all, I'm a sociologist, so I sort of bring a little different perspective um, than folks, than demographers. But, you know, they, we, do talk about dem, uh, we do talk about demographics being destiny in some ways, right? That they do sort of shape, um, you, you definitely can project, and the numbers do show that. Now, how it plays itself out is, is where I think there might be some disagreement, right? We have multiple definitions, multiple ways of thinking about, say, assimilation. Right, so we talk about families who are here, who can be here, and, and some of their children do worse off the longer they're here, right? And that, that has to do with this term, sort of what people refer to as segmented assimilation, right? Sort of how you make your way into this society. Um, well, we see that the impact is actually in the working class communities, right? So, it, so we sort of have the, the element of, of class that can be a component, right? So, so that poverty, if you, if you move into this country, if you move into the state, and you move into, into poverty, then as generations go forward, that becomes a, danger, a dangerous thing for children, right? Um, so I, I do see someone who does some research on, on young people, I do sort of see the assimilation. We do know that by third generation, um, the children of immigrants, most of them, the majority of them don't speak the native tongue, right, the, the family language. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think that the issue I take with even sort of the premise of a post-immigrant LA is um, I'm not even sure what LA, what is LA without the immigrants, right? So if you think about what, what defines LA and what people sort of define as their definition of, of the LA experience, for many people it involves some, something that comes out of an ethnic community, right? Um, so even folks who by third generation don't speak the home language, they, they start very sort of ethnically and culturally rooted. So I don't, I don't know, that, I, I don't know that, that it's gonna disappear. So you see sort of the sub-question that was asked for today's topic, right? And it's like, you know, is tasty food gonna go away? It's like, no, it's not gonna go away, right? So rest assured, it's not gonna go away. There's still gonna be people who are gonna be cooking it, right? And if nothing else, think capitalism, right? There's money to be made, right? All the food trucks, right? I'm, turned 36 four years ago. I've been going to food trucks since I was a kid. They were always around in my neighborhood growing up, right? And now all of a sudden they become a fad. Food trucks were here before the fad and they're gonna be here after the fad, right? Because there's people who are willing to consume it. So um, I think that's what's, what defines LA in many ways is, is that folks are willing and feel comfortable participating and engaging cultures beyond their own, right? And sometimes those interactions are not necessarily positive, but we are interacting with one another nonetheless. What do you all think would determines the rate of assimilation for a particular ethnic group? What determines whether or how fast they assimilate? 
So, so this, is, this is the big question. This is why we study, this is why we study immigrants, right? Why, why immigrant populations can study why, by social, uh, social sciences, right? The idea is Im assimilation good. Right, that's sort of the way we thought about it. So we want to, we have these measurements. Why, how is it, right? So I had a gentleman ask me once, why is it that we talk about third generation as third generation immigrants and not just as American or US citizens, right? And that's why, right? It's because we're trying to measure assimilation. And we assume that um, some people make the assumption or make the argument that the, 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 the more English they speak and the less connected to their native tongue, the better off they are. Right, but we have actually researched the contrary as well, right? So it, it's a lot more complicated picture. We look at indices in terms of, uh, in terms of median household incomes, right? So the idea, um, high school graduation rates, college enrollment, college graduation rates. So the idea is very sort of American dream, right? Who is sort of accomplishing the American dream? And we use those measurements. Um, but it becomes a complicated picture. I'll give you an example. Um, the model minority, right? We, People often talk about Asian Americans as the model minority. That came out of the 60s because it became the notion of labeling Asian Americans model minorities was to then point at other immigrants or point at African Americans, the black community, and say, what's, what's wrong with you, right? How come you can't advance like this, this other group of minorities who are doing quite well? But when you actually tease out the numbers, it's much more complicated <clears throat> than what it seems, right? So if you look at Asian Americans, for example, um, they have very high... SES, socioeconomic status, um, when you look at the indices and the census in terms of how much money the households make. Right? But when you break out the numbers, you actually, you actually find that the household income in many of those households is because you have multiple generations of adults working. Right? So that when you actually break it out, the numbers aren't as high as they seem. And sometimes it, the stereotype of like modern minority will hide the poverty that exists in some of these communities. Right? Or the racism that, that Asian Americans, for example, might might experience. Del? Well, let me uh, piggyback on what you're just saying right there. There's an interesting paradox I've noticed in my research. You know, uh, Asians have the highest uh, achievement level of most of our immigrant groups as a group, but turns out Latinos assimilate faster. Hmm. Interesting difference. And it turns out that the Asians arrive with a high education Assimilation level. Assimilation defined as what? Well, they, immigrants, I mean, Asians arrive with high education, they arrive with high wealth, and they, so that we think they're assimilated, they're not, so they just arrive that way. And, and ironically, it's actually the, the low-skilled Mexican immigrants who assimilate the longest and highest, because they, they actually do it the old-fashioned European way. They progress over time, or Asians don't progress as much over time. So it's a, it's a paradox. And it's, so if you think someone of high status is assimilated, that's not the... That's not the meaning of assimilation. Assimilation is a transformation over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think Asians over time do transform also, but it's not as visible because they start off at a higher level in indicators. Joel? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I would uh, argue that, first of all, it has something to do with, with um, what they come with. And, and also, in some cases, the cultures that they're coming from. In other words, many of the particularly recent immigrants, let's say from um, East Asia, are coming with business connections from the part of the world that is becoming prosperous the most quickly. And so they, they're coming in with those, um, those advantages. Um, so that, I think you know, it's part of the global picture. Um, but, but I do think that, that, that there is also the, the question of when immigrants, I, I wrote a book called Tribes about 20 years ago, and we looked at global cultures. And 
Some groups, when they emigrate, they happen to have whatever it happens to be, what happens to be most useful at that time. For instance, um, immigrants, uh, let's say, who came from uh, Poland and Russia, in the case of my family, came with, they didn't come with money, they didn't particularly come with much education, they were literate, that was about it. But they had entrepreneurial skills, they had, they had been forced into a capitalist mindset, which many other European immigrants did not have. In other words, um, the, 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 if you look at, at Poland at that time, lots of the tailors, small business people, professionals, because they couldn't own land, they couldn't do other things. And so they came to America, which is the capitalist paradise, and they were perfectly well suited. Mm -hmm. Now what we have is we have many immigrants coming with relatively low educations in an economy that has been fairly tif difficult for people with low educations, no matter what their ethnicities. If you're, if you're, in, if you're you know, a white in Kentucky or African-American in, in Newark, you know, you're, you're in a tough situation. And so one of the hardest things that we're going to have to cope with is when we have a large population that comes from relatively low educational achievement in a society that tends to value that very highly, I think they have a harder time adjusting um, economically. Now, they may adjust well, better culturally. But, uh, but that's exactly what we want. We actually want to bring in really low-skilled workers to do the kinds of jobs that, we, that Americans don't want to do. And, and the, the problem we have is that their children, when they grow up, they don't want to do those low-skilled jobs. So we bring in the parents as workers, and we get kids. So the simple solution... And a lot of the kids don't move up. Well, the, that's, the, that's our, we have to target on that. The target is how do you then leapfrog the kids two generations within one generation. Just, they have to go up because they, they can't sit on the bottom. And they, they, we have to focus on that. And it's also the nature of, of the economy we have today. You know, yeah. Polish immigrant comes right. to Pittsburgh. Dad, yeah. dad works in the steel mill. The kid works in the steel mill. They're yeah. part of the United Steelworkers. They have a pension. They have a high standard, relatively high standard of living. They didn't have to really boost their education level. Today, yeah. I think the, the lower skilled immigrants coming in today have a much greater challenge. Richard, or, sorry, go ahead. Our economy is now is we are no longer a manufacturing economy in the U.S. Right? We lost that in um, 70s, going to the 80s. We are now a service sector economy in many ways, right? And so that's that's what's available to immigrants, and, but that's not a that's not a pathway to middle class existence, right? So you you don't want that for your child as an immigrant, right? You're absolutely right. right. If you had a factory, you could say, hey, my child, even if he doesn't he or she doesn't continue on. There's an opportunity for them to get a job where that allows you to purchase a home, let's say, in some regions, right? Um, we don't have those jobs anymore. So, so, so that becomes a challenge. And I think for the added challenge for immigrant children sometimes becomes the notion of even if you're born here, you, you at times feel that you are not of here. You can, right? And we find that in some research, um, especially when dealing with Latinos. I mean, the discussion about immigrants in this country, it has, has a brown Latino face even though they're not the only immigrants, mm -hmm. right? And it's low-skilled, and it's pretty much, you know, code for Mexicans, um, right? So they're talking about, they're always talking about the border. When, when I was in Boston, I met many, many um, undocumented Irish. Right. You know, yeah, which, a lot. Kind of nice, right, to be able to sort of <laughs> blend in and not have to worry. Um, so, so how do you say... Uh uh, wetback and Gaelic. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, so so you so you know, it's it's that contrast, right? And I think I think that um, 
that we are not doing what we could be doing as a society for, for those children, right? So you have the DREAM Act, and it's interesting, even within that and everything, even within the movement for that, what you have is let's look for those, those sort of exceptional young folks, right? You know, so I, if I was younger and I was undocumented, I would count, right? I went to Harvard as an undergrad, then went back and got my PhD at Harvard, right? So, ooh, right? So it's, it kind of looks impressive. But the thing is, we have a lot of other young people who, who are not sort of those exceptional outliers, right? So what, how, do we, how do we help those folks? If they are gonna be the taxpayers, the folks who are gonna be supporting the baby boom generation, right? They have to pay taxes too, right? So what, what do we have? We have a, we're losing a lot of them to other things, right? Um, I teach on Saturdays. I teach at um, um, Creative Writing as a volunteer at, at Central Juvenile Hall here in LA, right? That's where you see a lot of brown and black faces, right? We, we're spending, for, we're spending 40, 40 to 45,000 to house them there for a year, and here we spend about $9,000 a year for, for their schooling. The DREAM Act allows people into this country who, are, who look like perfect Americans except for the color of their skin. That's what the DREAM Act does. Yeah. So this points me back to something that Richard raised earlier that I think is very important, which is this assumption that assimilation is a good thing. And the only question is, how do we get there quickly? How do we get these, all these ethnic groups to become perfect Americans? Um, do you, I mean, I find that to be a common assumption in the social sciences. I even find it in the world I teach in, in American studies, cultural studies. And I certainly find it in the media and in American consciousness generally. I mean, it sounds to me like you three sort of see it maybe as a mixed bag, well, assimilation. Well, first of all, assimilation constantly changes with each, you know, if you look at the history of immigration, the, the big concern in the early, uh, uh, in the 19th century was that there were too many Germans. And then, you know, then you, you had to you know, worry about the Italians, you know, they, they called the Italians the, uh, the Chinese of, uh, uh, um, the, the Chinese of, of Europe, mm -hmm. you know, and, they, you know, and then there was a concern, you know, and then, you know, Jewish immigrants came, they thought they, they were particularly retarded. And so, you know, now assimilating really means something, I think, very, very different, mm -hmm. you know. I think, you know, it, I think it's more about, A, a fealty to the country, which I think is, and the Constitution, which I think is a absolute basic, you have to have that. If you don't have that, you know, you've got chaos. But then beyond that, you know, how people express themselves, you know, in terms of how they eat, um, who they marry, mm -hmm. is very, 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 very different than it was even when I was a, I was a kid growing up. So I think assimilation has has evolved, has continued to evolve, and now it is much, much uh, different. Look, you know, this country, sir, it has its racist past, but it has an African-American president, which is something I didn't expect to see in my lifetime. Um, Who looks like the perfect American. He's but, assimilated. But and he's, by the way, and he's, by the way, yes, and he's, by the way, the son of an immigrant. <laughs> right, right, but the, but, but the bottom line is oh. you now have the, the shift in what is, who's a hero? You know, who are the well, cultural icons? The, this has changed over time, over the last, you know, 50, 60 years. So it's not assimilation to an Anglo-Saxon uh, value in most areas, except, again, I would insist on the Constitution well, and fealty to the country. That's there, there's it. so many things to say. So let me just refer to something that Richard Alba, the sociologist, um, has written about Joe DiMaggio, who he views as being a prototypical example of 20th century assimilation really in the changing standards that we apply. 
And early in, in, in DiMaggio's career, he was referred to as a swarthy Italian. Mm -hmm. He was an ethnic other on the New York Yankees. But then after World War II, suddenly he becomes Joe DiMaggio, the golden boy married to Marilyn Monroe. And they treated him totally differently. It was yeah. just this transformation that happened in the middle of the century. So I, I think that something, uh, the word assimilation is, is, a, is a controversial word because it, it, it implies homogeneity or sameness or, or the elimination of difference. And I, um, I think it's an antiquated term in the sense that it reflects popular culture in 1940. In, in 1940, all women wore their, their dress uh, hem length to the same exact length. There was no variation. There wasn't short skirts and long skirts. And as you know, today, we have everything going on. <laughs> That's our popular culture. We don't expect the same level of conformity that they did back then. So the old idea of assimilation, I think, was dated to that idea of conformity in general. But the new concept that we use today is, is more than just the word. I, I use assimilation. It's a useful word. but. The, the, the more meaty concept is one of integration, and I couple that with another word I call advancement. So it's partly like how much do immigrants advance, and you might call that assimilation, but it's really more, it's like on, on, on objective indicators, do they get more housing, do they get better jobs, do they get more income, that's advancement. And then there's uh, integration, which is how well do they fit in do they have equal chances in the economy? Do they fit into the, to the public order? Are they, are they becoming citizens and naturalizing? And can they vote? That, that integration. Now, what we have in, uh, in LA is a population that is totally diverse, but hopefully advancing and hopefully integrated. But it doesn't have to look the same. Do we all agree that there is no longer a call for cultural assimilation among our ethnic immigrant groups? A call by whom? Either within those groups or from outside. Oh, I, I, I would not agree with that. There, there I wouldn't calls. either. <laughs> there are calls. Um, I mean, I think, I think the politics, I mean, we look at the, the re-election of a black president, right, um, which people really embraced his blackness. Um, ex some folks excitedly, right, because then it becomes the first black president, sort of forgetting his white mama. Um, <laughs> but, you know. No one's proud. <laughs> But what's interesting to me about that is, is you see it, like I, I, I think the, the, the divisions in our country are being showcased in our politics. California is, an, I, I, I would argue, um, very much an outlier um, like in, in our country as a whole, um, in some pockets. And so we have very different ideas about what this country will be in the future. And some of us feel comfortable with that, and some of us don't, right? Some people feel comfortable with the demographics, and I think that that's, it's regional. Um, and, and so I think there's vast pockets in this country who don't feel comfortable with the fact that the world is not their grandfather's world, right? And, that, and Barack Obama represents that, right? And so he represents this immigrant change as well because that's also a demographic shift you're seeing in, in different parts of the U.S. Yeah, but I would argue that if you look at the migration numbers and what's happening, the fastest growth in immigration is taking place in exactly those places. Um, Which is why it makes it scary. Well, I don't think, you know, I, when I go, I was in Nashville recently and somebody was taking me around and he took me to Little Kurdistan, Little Somalia, Little mm -hmm. Mexico. This is in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. And at right. least in terms of these people, and, they, and these were business people, not academics, um, they, uh, they, they were quite excited by it. And they were, they, you know, I think that a lot of these communities that I go to in the middle of the country are not quite as closed-minded as, uh, as you might think. And, um, and they see an opportunity for 
to get some of that same energy that LA had in the 80s and 90s that they, that, that they see in their communities, and besides the fact that it greatly improves the quality of the food. I was just going to say, I mean, you know, yeah. so <laughs> the people in Nashville, they're excited about the new food in town. I mean, are they, so, I mean, it's, food has often been described as the wedge of acceptance yeah. for immigration, for immigrant groups, right? I mean, so I wouldn't get necessarily too excited about Nashvilleans and their re reaction to the Kurdistan. Well, you know what, I, I mean, what, well, what, what, what measurement of progress can you have? I mean, intermarriage. Well, you know, you... you oh, don't push it. No, I'm just saying... <laughs> <laughs> That's it's so 1961. Sociologists, it's one of the things we see, right? Intermarriage becomes sort of an indicator of, of how we see a people, right? There, there is a reason, there is a reason why, there is a reason why um, African-Americans don't get... Uh, white folks say don't intermarry black folks as much, right? The stigma that it gets attached to black, the black community, right? Um, Asian-Americans, high rates of outer marriage, right? Um, among Hispanics, pretty good rates. Actually, if you, if you if break them out by sort of nationality, Mexicans outmarry quite a bit. Did you say that intermarriage is good? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that that becomes an indicator of sort of acceptance, yeah. right? That then a community you said good in a place. Rates. I was just checking. Oh, yeah, well, oh, well, I, I would imagine that the intermarriage in a place like Nashville will will, will, yeah, will, will, you know, will happen right. as people get and, used to I, it. I have to brag about California then on this very indicator of intermarriage. In a sense, as we have a variable that measures people who are multiple races, and if you're multiple races, probably you had parents that were different. Uh, Okay, so I looked at African-Americans across the nation to see how many African-Americans are only African-American and how many are African-American and mixed with some other race. And it's interesting. In Mississippi, it's like 0.1% are mixed with some other race. And in Chicago, it's 3% because the Mississippians went up the river to Illinois and they recreated the race relations in Illinois. In New York, it's 6% who are mixed. California is 10%. That's one of my indicators of I think California is more tolerant and more, and more intermixed because of that one indicator. It just it reflects what I think about California. I think the, I think the, ocean, the other concern becomes, becomes sort of a generational concern, right? So if you, if you read um, Mary Waters' book, uh, Black Identities, in which she's talking about West Indians in New York, right? Um, the, par the parents really want to emphasize their, their ethnicness Right to differentiate themselves from from African Americans who, who are stigmatized in that society, right? Um, but the tension happens with the children, because the children they're like, I was born here, right? Why am I not being treated? Why am I why am I being stigmatized and mistreated? And while I think immigrants, especially Im uh, parents, right, they can come here and they're willing to put up with some prejudice and some racism, right? Because this is a new country, they're adopting to the ways. Whereas the children say, Wait a minute, I was born here. Right? And this is what you see in this work, where the, where, the, where, the young Haitian, the, the young Haitian children are saying, "I identify myself as black because that's how the society identifies me." Right? And, and that's you know, there's also the hip hop culture that they sort of embrace. But, but there is there is a way in which in which we can have a, a generational divide, where, where one generation maybe uh, understand that that their role is to assimilate or acculturate or sort of make their way of, of part of this community that they're moving into. Whereas the children, if they were born here, say, why am I not be, being accepted for who I, who I am? Right? Isn't this what we are about in America? So last night I met with a group of Occidental students who are part of what's called Alternative Spring Break. And this week, instead of going to uh, Cancun, they are actually studying immigration in Los Angeles. Um, and I asked them, I said, what, what does a post-immigrant Los Angeles look like to you? And one of them said to me, one word, 
boring. Uh, and I, I thought that was quite apt. Of course, I came at them with, you know, the history of immigration and the Irish and the Jews and the Italians and Latinos. And they said, it just, one of them said, it just sounds like boring to me, you know? I don't think I want to live there. And, and I'm not sure that I want to live there either. Um, would, would you want to live in a, a truly post-immigrant Los Angeles? Well, it's what defines the Californians when you go away from California and you come screaming back. <laughs> Are, are, we looking, are we looking at a more boring Los Angeles? Well, let's, let's get down to the well, brass tacks. You know, when, when I talk to my, you know, my sons and they go away and they, they, they can't believe what it's like out there. And so they, <laughs> they really want to come back. <laughs> it's so called America. I, I don't yeah. think it's going to be, it's, it may be a little bit more boring. It's going to be older. It's going to be like New York was in 1970 when I lived there where you had a lot of old the immigrants. The older I get, the more boring I get. So yeah. I, <laughs> but uh, but I, I, it's still the gateway. It's still the open. It's a cosmopolitan. It, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a border city that has all these influences. I think it's not going to lose that. Um, we don't want it to lose it. It's not like, you know, Italian, Italian, American, what do we call little Italy's? They've disappeared because there's no immigrants coming from Italy. None, none. But we always will have a flow of Mexicans coming here, a small flow, if it, it might be small. And that will always keep it alive, I think. And we won't lose it, so we won't turn into little Italy's disappearing, I don't think. Richard? Well, um, I agree. I mean, I'm not sure what the tipping point is for post-immigrant yeah. LA, right? right? Like you, but we're always gonna have an, um, a flow, and I think it, it will be from Mexico, just because it is, for two reasons. One, we're neighbors. Um, and the second, the second reason is if you look at any, at, at any two countries, right, that share a border in this world, they, Mexico and the U.S., that, that border has the highest difference of um, hourly wages, right. right? So why wouldn't you come here, hmm. right? If you, can, if you can, right next door, you have somewhere where folks are making in, in, a, in a day what you might make in a whole week. Right, um, so it's folks who come over sometimes sort of forget that we also pay, if you're living here, you also pay sort of rent and every thousand dollars, but um, nonetheless, I think that, that that will sort of continue to give LA a, um, an immigrant feel. And I, you know, I, I think also, I'm, I understand there's issues with the economy, but I, I can see that changing. You know, I, I, that's also something that we sort of have control over, and I think as uh, new opportunities open up, um, you know, if we put more emphasis on that and teaching our children different multiple languages, like some schools here in LA do, um, though not all of them, um, you know, that could open up markets through, throughout the world and we can make connections and have uh, more immigrants come here. So I don't, I, um, it's impossible for me to imagine in LA. Hmm. Joel. Um, well, first of all, you know, it'll be a while before LA gets too boring. Um, <laughs> But I do think that aging is going to be a big yeah. problem as young people cannot afford to buy houses and, then, and, they don't, and they have to go somewhere else for economic opportunity. Very common conversation that I've seen where people, middle-class people living, I live in the San Fernando Valley, where they say, well, my kids can't live here because they can't really afford to live here and they probably can't get a job. So everything boils down, to me, to the economic dynamism. Now, we may disagree about how you get there, but on the current trajectory, over the last five to ten years, um, it's going to be, you know, you're going to move towards a less immigrant and less newcomer society because people will not have a good reason to come here. They may have lots of reasons to visit. They may, you know, still have great weather and great beaches and things to see, but will they attract people? It just, I think about the fact 
that the increase in the number of foreign-born was six times in New York than it was in L.A. over a decade. New York is difficult, it's expensive, and its economy is not doing that great. It's doing a little bit better than ours. Something is, is sort of off. Now, we may be at a situation where we swallowed so much in terms of immigration, we changed so quickly, because I, in my time here, in 75, was the beginning of the big immigrant yeah. wave, and I saw the change. Maybe we'll sort of, having digested to some extent all that immigration, we'll be ready for more in five or 10 years. You know, one thing, um, no matter how good our equations are, history always throws you curveballs. And, you know, for instance, I would have been shocked, something that we also have found, is that Asians are now the largest immigrant group yeah, coming to the problem. U.S. Right. And I would have thought normally, well, Asia is an area of the world that's getting wealthy, mm-hmm. and why would people go from China or Singapore to here? And what I'm learning in the focus groups we're doing is that they're coming for different reasons. They're not coming for economic opportunity like earlier waves. They're coming to buy a house. You, if you believe me, no matter how much money you have, you'll never own a house in China, and you'll, never, and you'll certainly never own a house in Singapore, or in some cases, in the cases of the Chinese, to, wor- to worship as Christians where they really can't do it in China, or to have a second child, or to have a freer life. So what's interesting is that immigration is always throwing you curveballs and always making life interesting or difficult for people like Dow and me. And so I'm trying to understand what this next wave of immigration is about. Um, and hopefully, if our economy gets a little bit better, um, those immigrants will come because they'll see that there's opportunity and a better quality of life. Just so we're totally clear, the food will not get worse. No. <laughs> not in the no. short run. No, okay, the, the, the food might move, though. Right, so if you, uh, <laughs> Professor Jan Lin, who's in my department in sociology, so I gotta give him a little shout out. Um, he has a great book where he talks about uh, ethnoburbs, uh-huh. right? And he talks about sort of Chinese community and stuff. So, so while we have a Chinatown, right, there's few and fewer people living there, more folks are sort of moving out beyond sort of LA into the suburbs and they're becoming ethnoburbs, right? Um, so I think we'll still have it. It's just it might not be where it used to be. Well, okay. the interesting thing is L.A. gained about 100,000 foreign-born, and Riverside San Bernardino gained over 300,000. So that that's, exactly, that's going exactly illustrates your point. Hi, David Bloom. Uh, Dal, your and my former USC colleague, Morley Winograd, has written a couple of books about the impacts of millennials mm-hmm. on U.S. culture. Um, you guys haven't talked much about generational demographics, and I'm wondering what your all's thoughts are. I think, Joel, you've had some um, tart things to say about that whole area of well, demography. Well, there's like two things going on. First off, how many are there? That's a demographic question. And then, are the attitudes really that much different? And I think they are a bit different, but it's interacting. So we, we went through a dry spell where we had a shortage of people who were in their 20s. And then uh, the baby boomers' children reached of age, and now we have a growth in people in their 20s. That totally changes the, the, the cultural context for those people. There's a more of them. And then they came of age, unfortunately, in the Great Recession. So you have more people, you have bad e- economy, and, and so they're, they're adapting. The question is going to be, after we come out of the recession, will they maintain or retain these adaptations, or will they revert to being regular old middle class people? Uh, I think they're going to retain it. Well, I think in terms of their attitudes towards certainly, uh, their attitudes politically, I think, could evolve a little bit, but uh, their attitudes towards race are dramatically different. Um, 
I think well, yeah, it, that's clear. It, like inter, racial intermarriage, I think, is, you know, about the majority of people over 65 are against it, and about 15% of millennials. And, and you're speaking about national data. National data. Even, yeah, even more so in L.A., but national, too, yeah. So, and gay marriage is a good example. Yeah, I mean, gay marriage. I mean, those yeah, kinds of issues yeah. are, you know, I mean, basically, and I think even all but the most brain-dead Republicans realize that, you know, you've got to move forward on those issues. But these young people are also showing more interest in riding transit and, and living in the city. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of little, little things. There's a whole package. It's shifted. Part of that's because they're saving money, but you get used to it. You Although know. I have to say on that, Molly's research shows that when, when you ask them where their ideal place to live, it's suburbia, and it's more suburban than even the boomers. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, um, of course, that they'll be moving to ethnoburbs, so they'll have diversity in the backyard at the same time. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if you have any suggestions for improving the situation in Los Angeles in the coming years. I think it's getting better already. And I think we can accelerate it and make it even better, but it requires that we understand it's not like before. If we try to go back to before, we fail. If we accept the assets of the, of the future that await us right here, right now, and we embrace the change and make it happen better, then we go forward. So that, that's, that's what it comes down to. And right now, I think that the majority of voters still want to go backward. They still think 1990 is the standard. They don't realize, no, that, that's gone. And now there's a new standard. It's called 2010 or 2020. We have to be able to articulate that so that people can then rally around it. We haven't yet articulated what that standard is. Joel, I, I'm I, very po I, positive. I have a, well, there are two major things. A, we have to focus on e how we get economic growth, particularly higher wage jobs. One really scary thing is um, we do the, with things called location quotients, and we look at STEM jobs, science, technology, engineering, mathematics-related skills, um, uh, th those kind of jobs. LA, when I wrote California Inc. in 1982, had the highest concentration of scientists and engineers in the world. Today, we are below the national average in STEM jobs. So we are allowed our high-wage sectors to, to dissipate, and that's obviously something that has to be turned around. Second thing on schools, you know, I'm not necessarily against spending more money on schools, but I'm not, more, uh, not interested in pouring more money into the schools we have now. Um, I happen to have the fortune to, uh, good fortune to work in New Orleans, uh, where they've gone to a very radical change in their education system, and it sh seems to be doing something. Now the state of Massachusetts is considering it. Something has to change. Um, it, when my wife went with, to, with, for my, my youngest to the local elementary school and she came up to the, the school and the, and the principal said, this school is not for you. I knew there was something wrong. Um, that basically the, the fact of the matter is that unless, if we want to invest in education, we have to also invest in a very different type of education, a different system. The system now isn't working. I don't know who thinks, can possibly think it is. Take a look at California. Over 65, we rank about second or third in people over AA degrees. You get down to 20, 25 to 34, we're at about 25, 26. So we're clearly losing the advantage that we always had. So we have got to, I agree, invest in education, but we also have to change how we do education. And we have to focus fundamentally on how do we create higher wage jobs. And I don't see either of those things happening yet. And, and I think if we're going to be investing in education, we have to, we, we as a society, right, especially us here in LA and California, we need to be thinking about what it is that we want, 
right, and what that looks. Right, right now, a lot of people are throwing out the word education reform and doing a lot of different education reform, and um, it can mean many different things. Right, uh, Bill Gates and his folks poured in millions into small schools, and then the evidence showed didn't quite work as they expected, yet our children went through it. Right, and now, now we're charter schools, people are getting really excited about charter schools. The evidence is very mixed. Um, you know, it's, it's not showing that they are what people imagine them to me be, but yet we're pouring money there. And we have people like Bloomberg coming in and pouring money into, into our elections for the next school board member, right? So it's like, how are we gonna be defining what it is that we, we want out, out of our schools um, so that the next generation of, of taxpayers um, provides money here? And I think throughout California, at some point, it brings up the question about Proposition 13, right? I mean that. Oh, don't open it up right now. <laughs> he doesn't want to open it up, right? That's whether that's going to be open for, for discussion or not open for discussion. Um, you, you, you're starting to hear voices of people saying maybe, maybe we, if nothing else, need to ensure that corporations and companies don't get the benefits of Prop 13, only homeowners, because most folks don't know they also, they also get it, right? right? And whether that could give us a tax base. Given the high cost of education, sometimes for private schools, hundreds of thousands of dollars, <coughs> would you recommend that uh, immigrant children who are first in their generation to go, or in their family to go to school, go take on that debt and study something that doesn't produce a, a high earning career? How do you get more uh, immigrants to study engineering and science and computer programming instead of uh, education or art, something where there isn't the job market to sustain the debt they're incurring? I think that's a question that, that a lot of parents are asking whether their children are immigrants or not. I, I mean, the it's, same thing. It's, it's, it's really expensive. Um, I mean, one of the things we do know about immigrant parents, particularly Hispanic immigrant parents, is that people feel really uncomfortable with, with having debt, right? Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable with having debt. So sometimes parents don't want their kids to do as much, as much schooling or, or to make choices of which school they go to based on the amount of debt, right? So part of it, it, becomes, a, it becomes a matter of informing families and parents and, and immigrant folks to saying, like, look, we have good debt and we have bad debt. Education debt is good, right? Uh, you might want to have that when you file taxes. Um, but, the, I mean, the bigger question here is just the explosion in, in the cost of of college period, right? And, and with stem cell, with sort of the stems, there, there is sort of the federal government, people are talking about putting, putting money there. But it does become a question, much broader question. I mean, there was a time when here in California, you can say, go, go to community colleges because we have a fabulous system. And, and we still have fabulous schools, but we don't have a fabulous system we used to have in California. I, I, the, the one thing also, I, I, I shouldn't say this since we all draw some check from a university. A lot of people probably I think a lot, maybe more people go to universities and really should be going, and there may be a lot of opportunities in certificate programs and uh, in job training for skills that are actually needed in the economy and don't incur the same debt. And I've seen a lot of states um, that I, I've looked at, Louisiana, Texas, uh, Texas has some, Tennessee has some, where they've really focused on um, working with industry to get jobs that people can actually make a decent living in. Um, I'm actually visiting a whole bunch of them um, in some of the outer parishes around New Orleans. And, and so I think we also have to start thinking about, is it better to incur debt for four years to get a degree that does nothing, or are you better off with a year or two getting a certification in a profession of various kinds that actually can make a living? And I think one of the things that's going to happen to the millennials is they're going to learn from experience that 
they don't, they may need to make different choices than boomers were able to make. Um, Obama in his last State of the Union address mentioned that, right? He, he highlighted sort of Germany and how they have a right. different program where you can sort of do an apprenticeship um, sort of approach to, to work towards a career. As a sociologist, who's, you know, we sort of always think about inequities, the thing that makes me really uncomfortable with that is who gets the opportunity, right? As it is, kids already get tracked, right? Even when we're talking about people going, to, going towards college. So I, I have nothing against sort of vocational training. Um, my reservation is about, it's, it's about access and opportunity and who gets encouraged in which direction. Well, I, I, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that it's a thing of race. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of moms are going to start thinking about, well, okay, do I, would I rather have my child get a degree in English from Cal State or become a plumber? Absolutely. And I think, you know, being a plumber might make more sense. Right. Day of the Dead, Cinco de Mayo, different kinds of cultural activities are happening in suburbia. Yes, we're assimilating, but I don't think you really caught the character of the assimilation that California is going to look like in the next 20 years. I can't imagine sort of LA with, without it because, and that's why I said I'm not sure even sure what LA or, or California culture is, right? I mean, you have folks from different communities who attend these events that are, that are at one point were sort of culture events that were limited to a particular community, and now they've, for lack of better words, have, have has sort of gone mainstream or something, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I mean, that's the beauty. That's the beauty of LA is that you can participate <clears throat> in this, and no, and no one's no one's going to necessarily. Um, look at you in a strange way because you happen not to be of that community and participating. So, um, but I agree. I mean, uh, given the fact that this is a, a predominantly non-white city um, and it's, it's heavily immigrant um, in many ways, um, that, that has to be acknowledged for sure. Yeah, I, I always subscribe to the idea that assimilation is a two-way street. It's definitely true. The, the, the norm, it moves over time and it's a, it's a, it's a merger um, how that comes out, how that plays out is different in every case, but it's, it's a two-way street and it's different. Our, our standard is different in California than it is in Kansas. That's probably what makes us a more interesting place. One of the reasons that people give that Los Angeles doesn't have a strong political culture, doesn't have a strong civic culture, measured in terms of things like uh, voter participation and also in terms of things like voluntary organizations, philanthropy, et cetera, et cetera, is that we're a city of people that come from somewhere else, people who have roots somewhere else and don't feel a real sense of belonging. Um, how do you think that might change as we become a city of more natives? The, the increase in social capital that comes from having a network of, of school friends that you grew up with who then lean on you to contribute to their favorite cause and then you have to get them to contribute backwards so that it builds a network of giving, a network of investment and, and people aren't thinking in the back of their mind, well, you know, when I retire, I'm out of here. I'm gonna take my money and run because there's no out of here. I mean, this, this is the place they know. I think we're gonna have that, a, a tipping point will happen uh, where the culture shifts towards more homegrown, meaning rooted and committed now, people who are transplants don't like to think that they're not committed. It, many people lived here for 30 years or, or longer, and they are. I mean, obviously, they've stayed. And so it's offensive to them to think that they're not committed. Uh, and so it's, it's a delicate use of the word. But they're not as rooted because if you're, if you're born here, I know one thing for sure. If you're born here, your mother was here too. Um, she had to be. Actually, actually um, that makes you committed. Uh, 
I, actually, I, I think a, a bigger part makes of you flee sometimes. Why, why we have a very weak philanthropic community is that our, you know, we have a very weak business community. If you look at lots of communities that have strong philanthropic uh, uh, communities, they have also very strong business communities. Um, so part of what Dal's saying is correct, but another part of it is, and we were talking about this earlier, over the last 20 or 30 years, the number of major corporations that were headquartered here has declined. Many of our major institutions have been acquired and their headquarters moved elsewhere. I mean, I was thinking of the, uh, the days um, when Arco was here, um, Atlantic Richfield, and they were, a big, they were big contributors. You go to the major cultural institutions and they were very, very um, involved. And one of the big problems we have now is LA doesn't have a, a deep uh, bench of large corporate players who would be the ones who would tend to uh, contribute to, to philanthropy. And it's just, it's something that's really developed over the last 20 or 30 years. We have a bunch of Medici, some very, very rich people mm -hmm. who give money, but in many cases it's whatever their idiosyncratic interest is, is what they give money to. But I've seen in other communities where there's a, a strong business community um, there's much, much stronger philanthropy. Yeah, let, me, let me just quickly add that it, it's ironic that like in old places like Cleveland and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, they have much more of this giving um, spirit. But, but really, the, the voter participation is more of the average person. That's where we're so weak. And, it, and I think that's tied into this, that uh, people, the, we've grown a culture here of non-participation. We have to rebuild the culture. And, and you can't just sort of flip a switch and say, okay, now we're going to all vote. You have to grow it from high school. And if the high school kids have immigrant parents who are not citizens, or who are not citizens long enough that they weren't used to voting, they don't take their kids into the voting booth. My name is Parisa. I appreciate the discussion. It's definitely a very uh, interesting topic. Um, I'd like to ask uh, each of your opinions and as uh, well your take on the issue of education reform and what's being done today and what should be done moving forward in a post-immigrant LA. Um, what, in your perspective, should be done, if at all, and what research shows um, any changes in foreign international students that come receive education in uh, whether it's two-year uh, two colleges or four-year universities with um, stipends, what have you, scholarships with an agreement to go back, receiving education here and leaving. What is your take on if that um, whole program should change and if at all how that impacts you know, a post-immigrant LA? I'm not an education expert. I know enough that it's really complicated. But I think it's a waste to, my students, that when we graduate, they have to leave. And we've, we've invested all this energy in them, and, and they're talented, and they, we force them to leave. I think it's one of the first things that's going to change uh, in immigration reform. We're going to allow people to stay uh, or have a path to a green card after they, um, they complete their education here. Yeah, so, so, one of, so that's, that's a thing that's likely to change, right? I mean, that's... President Obama talked about that as sort of part of the STEM movement is to try to say, okay, let's not have, as people like to refer to, like a brain drain, right? Like we sort of, these people get skilled and they go and they go elsewhere. There's a reason why other countries are sending their people here, right? Because we have, we have really good educational programs, but they get trained and then we don't, we don't get the benefit, right? Which is, which is a change. But, you know, we also have a lot of young people here that we could be benefiting from, right? Um, that we could be investing in. And with the issue of education reform, um, Personally, sort of locally, I feel very uncomfortable with, with the charter school movement, um, given the research, right? And, and let me be clear here. I'm not talking about a particular school, right? There's some great charter schools, but just the movement as a whole, 
right? Because you're starting to have a lot of sort of money, money interest come into it. So I don't know what the future is going to look like. And I think that w one of the things we don't have is, is if you if you take a business, so people introduce the business model, right? And they say, okay, well, if the school fails, you know, bad schools will fail, and then you know they'll close down. Yeah. What about the kids who are there, right? And and if you if now let me further the the business model, right? This business fails, yes. But guess what? The customers get taken up by a different business, right? Schools don't have unlimited enrollment, right? So where do those kids go, right? They they can have two or three years at a school that failed, and then where do they go? So it's it's the language of education reform. It's it's really fascinating. I think part of it comes from a, a, a twenty plus now disc, a year discourse of public schools suck, public schools fail, right? I went to public school, and it was great when I was there, right? And it's not that there's no problems, but there's a way in which we as a society have bought into that narrative and have participated in the creation of that narrative and have not funded our schools, right? It's one of the greatest things we've had in California were our public schools, right? K through 12, our, our community colleges and even our UCs. That, that's what made California a gem and what made so many other states jealous of us. Right? And we don't have that the way we used to. I, I just think that the, the A, I, you know, and I'm not an education expert either, but I would just say whatever we're doing now, it's not working. <laughs> um, that's pretty obvious. Um, I mean, we're like 48th or 49th in science achievement overall as a state. I mean, that's not going to get it done. Um, so, I mean, I'm very um, interested just in the Fabian way of how we can best uh, accomplish that. But I, I would add that we also have to start thinking about how do we grow an economy that can fund our education? Because I think what we're going to find is there's only so much you can take from the middle and upper middle classes before it actually is um, counterproductive. And we have to figure out a way of how do we expand the amount of money that, that's available by growing the economy. And when the political class begins to focus on that issue, I think we'll be in a much better position to deal with education. Great. Thanks so much for coming. Have a good night.